So yeah, thank you, Helen, for reading. Morning, everyone. Um, today, as we just read, we're going to be in Luke chapter 1, verses 26 to 38. Um, keep your Bibles open there. If you don't have a Bible, just stick your hand up and we will get one to you. I think Chris has got some at the back. Um, yeah, I'm just going to give you a quick overview of the first 25 verses of Luke, and then I will get into the passage. So up to this point in the chapter, we've had Zachariah and Elizabeth. They were an older couple who had no children. He was a priest in the temple of the division of, Ab- uh, in the division of Abijah, and she was from the tribe of Aaron. They were both righteous before the Lord, walking blamelessly according to the law. Zachariah was in the temple, in the Holy of Holies, burning incense one day, something that would have only happened once in his lifetime. And while he was in there, he was visited by the angel Gabriel. And while the angel Gabriel came and told him that he and Elizabeth would have a son. Further to this, he commanded them to call their son John. When he heard this, Zachariah doubted, and so was made mute until the birth of John. I say all of this to give us the context. Luke doesn't open with Mary, the mother of Jesus, but with Zachariah and Elizabeth, the parents of John the Baptist. This, of course, makes sense since John came to herald the way for Jesus and prepare that way. Let me just pray and then we will get into the text. Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you that we are able to have it and read it, Lord. Lord, I pray that as I speak that you would help me, Lord. And I pray that we'd all be open to you and receptive to your word, Lord. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So yeah, let's dive in. Verse 26. In the sixth day, in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph, of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. So this is the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, after that encounter that Zachariah had with Gabriel. And we have Gabriel again here. He's one of God's angels, one of the messengers. His name translates as hero of God. He's sent to Galilee, to Nazareth in Galilee, the small town in the north. He's sent there to visit Mary. Now Galilee itself is an area that the Jews would have called non-kosher. That is, they were ceremonially, ceremonially unclean because there was a significant amount of interaction with the Gentiles there. And then within this area of Galilee, we have this town of Nazareth. So if the reputation of Galilee was bad within the nation of Israel, the reputation of Nazareth within Galilee was that of the Galilee of Galilee, so to speak. It was really not a nice place. So much so that when Nathanael is called to be a disciple in John chapter 1, verse 46, he says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? It was not a place that you would think the Messiah would grow up. That would have been in Jerusalem or one of the great cities of Israel, not this tiny town with a terrible reputation. Now I'd like to present, I'd like to draw your attention to the way that Mary is presented. The focus is not directly on Mary, at least not yet. No, it's on two other things. The first being Joseph. Because although he was a craftsman by trade, he was from the historic royalty of Israel. He was from the line of David. Why is this important? Well, in Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7, it says, 
we are told that the Messiah will come from the line of David to sit on the throne. I'll get back to this later in the passage, but by the fact that Joseph was in the line of David, it fulfills this prophecy from Isaiah. Jesus would have been known as the son of Mary and Joseph. Although he was not biologically from Joseph, he would have been legally. And so he would have fulfilled his right to be on the throne through Joseph. The second thing that I will mention here is the betrothal. These days we usually attribute the idea of engagement to betrothal. We think of it as that sort of um, a man and a woman getting ready to get married. But it's not. It's so much stronger than that. In first century Jewish culture, the betrothal period was as binding as marriage. It was a period in which the groom would prepare a place for his bride. And to break that relationship, he would have had to have gotten a legal divorce. It is not just some period where they're getting ready for the wedding, but it is as if they were married but living apart. It is only after we've been told that this man and woman are betrothed, only after we have been told that he is from the house of David, are we actually told who the woman is that he is betrothed to. The, the name of the virgin that Gabriel was sent to, Mary. Verse 28. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favoured one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. Gabriel found Mary. I think it's safe to assume that because he was sent to her, he didn't have to spend hours wandering around the streets of Nazareth trying to find her. He knew exactly where to go because he was the messenger sent to her. Once he comes to her, he greets her. He calls her favored. States that the Lord is with her. Let's just take a few minutes to think about what it is to be favored. I think in today's culture, we usually think of favorite as preferred. We think favored means favorite or preferred one, but it doesn't. It's not about who we think God likes best. This isn't, Mary wasn't God's favorite. Rather, she was found to be pleasing in the sight of God. She had remained blameless in the sight of the Lord and found favor with him. When we look through the Bible to see the people that are favored in the eyes of the Lord, we get some of the great, faithful, righteous men of God. People like Noah, Abraham, Moses, and David. To say that favor is merely God's favorites is wrong. All of these men feared the Lord and carried out his commands. For Mary to have God's favor upon her, I think it's fair to say that she was a woman who feared the Lord and walked according to his law. This is cemented by the fact that Gabriel says, the Lord is with you. When we think about Gabriel appearing in the Bible, often when confronted with the sight of an angel, people are fearful. We see in the Old Testament several instances of this. For example, in Numbers chapter 22, when Balaam finally sees the angel after these instances of the donkey talking, he falls to the floor, he bows his face down low. Or in First Chronicles uh, chapter 21, when David sees this angel above Jerusalem with a sword drawn in judgment, he and the elders clothe themselves in sackcloth and bow to the ground. In the same chapter, we have Ornan and his sons hiding from it. So although angels are ultimately messengers from God, they will bring whatever the message is, whether it be joyous or judgment. 
And these people knew that. One of the parents of Gabriel, I should mention, is Zachariah, as, we, as, we, as I said earlier. Earlier in this chapter, he sees the angel and is troubled and fearful. He doubts, and so is made mute. But he doubted the message, not the messenger. And so it is the same with Mary. The angel appears to her, saying that she is favored, but she is troubled and tries to discern. Where Zachariah doubted, Mary is discerning. She tries to reason through what the angel said. I think this shows her humility. She didn't hear the message and go, well, it's about time. I've been waiting for you. No, she heard it and was disturbed. She was worried. She questioned through it. I also think the place that the angel decided to appear to Mary is surprising. When Gabriel went to Zechariah, he was in the temple. And even within the temple, he was in the Holy of Holies. It was the place where the priest was only allowed to go once a year. It makes sense for an angel, this holy being who stands in the presence of God, to go to this holy place. It makes sense to him to come and appear to a priest, a man who carried out God's law. But for him to appear to Mary while she was at home, in a place that was not especially remarkable, to a girl that was not particularly important apart from this, well, that is surprising. And I want to be very clear here. Mary was a sinful human being, just like you and I. She, when she died, she was buried. She did not ascend to heaven. She cannot intercede for us before the Father. I do, however, think that Mary is an important character. We should not just brush her off. She is called blessed among women and the mother of my Lord by Elizabeth. Mary is important. Let's keep going. Verse 30. The angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. After seeing Mary's reaction to his words, Gabriel gives her comfort. Do not be afraid, Mary, you have found favor with God. Mary, although discerning, would have been quite distressed, I'm sure. It is, after all, not every day that you have an angel appear to you and speak a message from God. And please don't downplay this. Mary was a Jewish girl. She knew exactly what the stories would have been from her history and her nation. She would have known that God used angels to bring messages. It's however one thing to know the stories. It's something completely different to be confronted with the reality of that. It's very different to have an angel standing at your doorstep saying, you are favored one. The Lord is with you. It's one thing to see the angel. It's a different thing to actually obey the message. In the case of Mary, she is told that she'll be part of this impossible miracle. Look down with me at verse 31. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. And you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and we call the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. Mary is told what will happen. <clears throat> who she will bear and what her son's future will look like. She is commanded by the angel to name the child Jesus. The name Jesus is the Greek form of Joshua, which means Yahweh saves. The parallel account of this passage appears in Matthew 1. And in that account, we see the dream that is given to Joseph regarding Jesus. And in that account, it gives him the title Emmanuel. 
We've sung a few songs that have that name in it today, and we know that it, it means God with us. And I do encourage you this week to go and look at Matthew chapter 1 for yourselves. But that title, Emmanuel, really shows us the fullness of this fulfillment for these words to Mary. Jesus, Yahweh saves. Emmanuel, God with us. In these words, there are what I see as three promises in this verse. In these verses. They are first that Jesus would be great and known as the Son of the God, of God Most High. Second, that God will give him the throne of David. And thirdly, that he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and over his kingdom there will be no end. Let's look at each one of these promises individually quickly. The first, he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. When we look at the life of Jesus, we see many things that we can learn from. But for now, I want to focus on the impact of his early ministry. When Jesus started his ministry at his baptism, it was a very public declaration of who he was. Um, in Luke chapter 3, verses 21 to 22, I've got the verse on the screen there. It says, Now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized, and was praying, the heavens opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. The voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. This is just after Jesus' baptism, with the Father and the Spirit very clearly coming upon Jesus in the midst of all these people who have been baptized and states, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. It is a very clear and public declaration on the part of God that this was the Messiah, the Christ that they had been waiting for. And the first thing that he does after this public declaration, well, Jesus goes into the desert to fast for 40 days. And during that time, he is tempted by Satan. I think the temptation shows us the divinity and the greatness of Christ. After 40 days of not eating, Christ is confronted by the devil, who challenges him first to turn a stone into bread. But he resists by quoting the Bible. He quotes Deuteronomy chapter 8. Man does not live on bread alone. Then Satan says, bow down and the world is yours. But again, Christ resists, quoting from Scripture. This time it's Deuteronomy 6 of 1 Samuel 7. And then the final time, in trying to test Christ, Satan says, jump off the table, off the temple. Not the table. Surely God will rescue you. But Christ again quotes from Scripture, Deuteronomy chapter 6. I believe that in this temptation of Christ, we can see that he was here, he knew why, and he knew what he was going to do. And he knew that it was not to submit to this devil, the Satan that we know, but to defeat him, to break his back. Christ was able to stand where we all fall. I think this is the greatest thing that any man could possibly do, and he could only do it because he was God incarnate. He was God with us. Can you see his greatness here? This is the first time that we truly see the fullness of his sinlessness, his dominion over everything, and his authority over even the devil. If you also want to see his greatness in terms of fame, you could just look at the feeding of the 5,000, or the triumphant entry into Jerusalem, 
I think however you calculate greatness, it is easy to see that Jesus fulfills it. If you take it to here to today in the Western world, he's the most well-known person in all of history. Even if you know nothing about the gospel, nothing about church, nothing about the Bible, nothing about God, you will know the name of Jesus. Okay, second promise. God will give him the throne of David. This promise is one that will be fulfilled in the future when Christ returns to establish his kingdom. He will sit on the throne of David. This is the fulfillment of the covenant that God made with David in 2 Samuel chapter 7. This is interesting because when God promises something, he will do some, yeah, when God promises something, whatever he has promised will happen. It is the very nature of God to fulfill what he says because God cannot lie. It is the very nature of God to fulfill what he says because of that. He says to David in, Samuel, in 2 Samuel 7 verse 6, 16, And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. God promised David that his throne will last forever. When he said that, he knew exactly how he would fulfill it. In Acts chapter 2, verses 29 to 36, Peter, while preaching to the people in the power of the Spirit, shows the fulfillment of this. Um, let me just read for you um, Acts chapter 2, verses 29 to 36. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with him an oath to him, that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption, but Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the hand at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this, that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he says, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand, until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. David could not fulfill the promise because he died. But when Christ died, three days later he was raised back to life. And he ascended to the Father and can fulfill this promise because he will not die again. Now it says there, the throne of his father, David. Now this is not speaking of David being the literal father, but being a descendant. It is common occurrence in the Bible for a male ancestor to be called father. It is meant to signify descent from that person and the importance of the line, that generational line. Here it emphasizes that Jesus is a descendant of David, so he can take the throne of David. Okay, let's look at the third promise. Um, it's in verse 33. 
and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. We need to see this in connection to the previous promise because it is still to do with Christ reigning. When Christ returns, he will physically reign over the house of Jacob, that is Israel. He'll return and reign forever. Christ is eternal. He has no beginning and no end. In the Bible, it talks about the future kingdom of God and what it will look like. In Daniel chapter 2, verse 44, it says, And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. When Christ returns, there will be no kingdom, no ruler, no country that will not bow before him. In Revelation 11:15, it says, the seventh, Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven, saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. And he shall reign forever and ever. This is something that we are told will happen. It is coming. Christ will return to take his place on the throne of David as the one and true rightful king of this world. This isn't something that is built on assumptions or centuries of tradition. No, it is given to us in the word of God. In Revelation 22, verse 3, it speaks of the new creation, and it says, No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. And a bit later, in verse 5, it says, And night will be no more. There will be no need for light or lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be there eternal, and they will reign forever and ever. The kingdom of God is eternal. It will never pass away. It will never be defeated. Jesus, while he was on earth, showed us that although he is God, he was willing to come in humility, to come as a man, so that we could have an opportunity to be saved. But soon he will return to take his place as king. And at that point, there will be judgment. There will soon come a time when Christ will return, and if you haven't accepted him at that point, then you'll be condemned by your own sinfulness, and the door will be permanently closed. Just look at the rich man and Lazarus. When the rich man was in Hades being tormented, there was no way out. God's judgment is final. I think after seeing these three promises, we can safely say that Mary knew who she was going to bear. She knew that he was the Messiah. I was thinking about that Christmas song, Mary, Did You Know? The song says, Mary, did you know that your baby boy is the Lord of all creation? Mary, did you know that your baby boy will one day rule the, will one day rule the nations? And the answer to this is a resounding yes, she knew. She knew that he was the Son of God. She knew that he was going to rule. She is told right here by the angel Gabriel. Okay, let's keep going. Verse 34. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God.
Mary is questioning, how will this be? But unlike Zachariah, who responded to Gabriel's message with doubt, he said, how can this be? Mary responds and asks without doubting. She goes, how will this be? She knows that God can, but she wants to know how will he? And ultimately, we don't know the exact biological explanation of what God did there. But the thing is, we don't need to know. We do not need to know any more than we are given in Scripture. That is the beautiful thing about the Word of God, is that he gives us exactly what we need. Nothing more, nothing less. So how will it be? We see the angel says the Holy Spirit will come upon her and the power of God will overshadow her. But any more than that, we do not know. We do know, however, why this happened. One commentator puts it this way, this miraculous conception and virgin birth of Jesus Christ was necessary because of his deity and pre-existence. The fullness of this is seen in the prophecy of Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7, where he says, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of, the pe and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it, and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. In verse 6 it says, A child is born, a son is given. The very nature of Christ is that although he was born, that shows his humanity, he was the pre-existent son of God. And so where it says a son is given, this shows the pre-existent deity of Christ. He is holy and set apart because he is God with us. He is Emmanuel. But also see that this prophecy ties back to everything that the angel has said so far. He is the son of David who will sit on the throne and establish his kingdom. There's also another prophecy that comes in Isaiah 7.14 where Isaiah says that the sign to the house of David to prove that these prophecies are true will be that a virgin will conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. The name Emmanuel only appears three times in the entirety of Scripture. Twice in Isaiah and once in Matthew where he is referencing Isaiah. Emmanuel is a title that is only ever given to Jesus Christ, whether in prophecy or in fulfillment. Verse 36. And behold, your relative Elizabeth, in her old age, has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Remember that this is still the angel's response for Mary's question. But Gabriel stops talking about Mary and starts talking about Elizabeth. He uses her as an example of God working in a way that no one would have thought possible. We can see that this verse mirrors the opening verse in 26, reaffirming and letting Mary know that Elizabeth is six months pregnant by this point. 
That message that Gabriel gave to Zechariah was not one for the distant future like some of the Old Testament prophecies, but one for the immediate. Mary, Mary knew that Elizabeth was already six months pregnant. Now, the exact relationship between Mary and Elizabeth is not completely clear. Um, some translations say that they were cousins. However, the reading that we have here where it says relative is more accurate. They probably weren't cousins based on the substantial age gap. Elizabeth was past childbearing age, and Mary was probably just a teenager. But they were related. And we see that Elizabeth and Zachariah had never had children. Elizabeth was known as barren. This would have been a great cause of shame for this Jewish culture. We see that in verse 25, Elizabeth praises the Lord for taking away the reproach of her being childless. But we see that this example of Elizabeth is one to show the vast, immeasurable power of God. He can come to an elderly couple with no children and say, you will have a son and you will call him John. I said earlier that when God promises something, then it will happen. Here we have again God promising something and it happening. This is all to show there is nothing that God cannot do. For nothing is impossible for God. He is the authority, the one and only person in the universe who can do anything. Nothing is impossible for him. And look there at Mary's response. It's not one of garish arrogance saying, look at me, I'm so special, I will carry the Messiah. No, it's one of humble servitude. It is an attitude that recognizes the supremacy of God and his authority over the world. He says, she says, let your will be done. I am your servant. Do as you have said. Before I give application, I just want to say something that blew me away while I was studying for this. When Christ came, he fulfilled over 300 prophecies. In my Bible school course last year, we took just 10 of these prophecies and calculated the probability of them being fulfilled by one man. That number was 1 times 10 to the power of 17, or 1 in 100 quadrillion. It is the same probability as if you marked a single coin and then covered the entire state of Texas with coins two feet deep, walked across the entire state, and the first coin that you picked up was the one that you had marked. That is the probability of just 10 of these prophecies being fulfilled by one man. Jesus fulfilled over 300 of them. It really blew me away. Okay, let me give you some application this morning. I have three applications for us today. And the first is this. Christ is king. Today we see that Mary knew who Jesus was going to be. She knew that he was the Messiah. She knew that he was going to rule over all the earth. The question is, do we? Do we truly recognize the sovereignty of God? Do we see him as the king, the ruler of our lives? The sermon last week was about solus Christus in Christ alone. I challenge you today to take a few minutes to think about the way that you view Christ. Do you see him as just some distant God that you struggle to have a relationship with? Or do you see him as the one and the true king over everything? the king who wants to intimately know you. 
Because at the end of the day, he is the king, whether you see it like that or not. The only difference is when we truly recognize the authority of Christ as king, then our living for him becomes so much easier. This leads into my second application, which is this. Let us be submissive servants of God. In the final passage from today, in the final verse from the passage today, we get to see the attitude of Mary is one of humility, recognizing the authority and sovereignty of God. This is how we should respond to the word of God. We have it here in front of us. We can read all of his commands and we can see what his will is for us. He wants us to be in his word, reading and growing, being sanctified by him and being made righteous, changing from glory to glory. But for this to happen, we need to let him guide us. Ben spoke at last week's communion service about walking in the spirit. And that is what we need to be doing. When we are submitting to God and walking in the spirit, then we are dying to our fleshly sinful desires and living in submission to him. At that point, he will use us. It's not about our ability, but our availability. But if we are not submitting to his will, if we are not submitting to what he says, if we are not walking in the spirit, then he cannot use us. We cannot be against God and still expect him to use us. My third and final application is this. Are we waiting for the Lord? The context for this whole interaction in Luke is that of silence. God hadn't sent a prophet or any sort of word to the people of Israel in over 400 years. The people were growing tired of living under Roman rule. They were expecting some mighty warrior to come and deliver them from the Romans through blood and violence. They were not expecting for the Christ to be born and to come as a humble servant king. They'd become legalistic and apathetic to the possibility of the Messiah coming to them. And eventually the nation of Israel rejected Christ because he did not fit into the mold of what they thought the Messiah should be. I want to encourage us as a church that we should be expectant for the return of Christ. He has said that he will return and what God says happens. When I look around the world today, I see a place that does not honor Christ as king, a place that has become apathetic to the thought of Christ, to the thought of him returning at any time. A place that puts the thoughts of the culture before the thoughts and words of God. Let us therefore strive to be a church that is waiting for the return of Christ expectantly putting him before everything else in the world and trusting him in all circumstances. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you that we have your word. I thank you that you sent your son. I thank you that we have everything, or that we have what he said. Lord, I thank you that we are able to live in the spirit and walk according to your will. I pray that we would strive to do so, Lord. I pray that as we go away from here, Lord, that as we yeah, go on with our lives, Lord, that we'd be able to put you at the front, put you in charge, Lord. We would walk according to your spirit, walk not according to the flesh, Lord. 
I pray that you would help us in that, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.